Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Psychovertical Podcast, a weekly podcast about climbing and stuff. I'm your host, Andy Kirkpatrick, um, Hull's second best climber. That's how I like to describe myself. Um, <coughs> uh, this week I'm going to talk about what's going on in my life at the moment and talk about uh, climbing partners and how you find them. I had a few questions about that. Uh, I'm actually laid in, laid in bed. What time is it? It's uh, seven o'clock in the morning, and I'm um, in a man at the moment, still in a man. And I've been on the road for about a week since the last podcast, uh, like camping and stuff um, in the mountains. This is very, very cheap, very cheap way to live. Um, yeah, uh, what, did I, what did I do? So I've been. Uh, <laughs> I'm in a hotel at the moment, which is a very, uh, it's a very fancy hotel. It's very cheap. It's like the cheapest hotel we could find. But it's like a, a, ma- a very good, amazing hotel. Like when we turned up, we looked like, like basically not wash my clothes. Because I was only supposed to be away for like a week. And this is like, I'm going to be away for like three weeks because of the virus thing. And uh, not wash my clothes. We neither of us washed our clothes for like two weeks. We've been out in the desert with like Saudi Arabia first. Now we're here. So we uh, we look like a bloody state. We look like someone out of a Bear Grylls kind of uh, advert or something. And yeah, we rocked up in this hotel, and someone appeared and gave us like orange juice and water and everything. So anyway, so we um, Vanessa for some reason Vanessa doesn't look as bad as I do, but we were in the supermarket and apparently. Um, plus, we were looking at my feet. Cause my feet were very dirty, and um, but people are very very. Uh, I think I think living in a very, I think you you often find when you travel to places where you have the greatest reason or excuse for being really really dirty, you know, having dirty clothes and just being just generally dirty, people seem to be more clean. If you know what I mean, like if you're in, like you know, like back or beyond of Kenya or like here or wherever, like. Um, where there's like maybe not a lot, not a lot of water. There's no like people that have washing machines or whatever. Like people are like, like really spick and span. Like people living in what you know what we would what we'd view as like real squalor. Uh, you know, like living in some sort of shanty town. Like people look amazing. Like I said, I don't, I don't know why. You know, everyone's like hand washing the clothes and everything else. And the same the same here. Like it's so it's so dusty in the Gulf that you just get. You know, you go anywhere. Like if even if you like open a open the back of your car, you just constantly covered in dust, and you've got dust on your trousers and everything else. But people, uh, 
you know, like so, like so so clean. Everyone's wearing like white clothes, while all the men are wearing white clothes, and all the women are wearing black. You know, a lot of women are wearing black clothes, and black clothes are probably even worse. Show the 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 dust even more. So, um, like in the cult in um in sort of uh Islamic culture, there's a lot of stuff about cleanliness and washing your hands, washing your feet, and and to do with water and stuff. So, is that if if you've ever if you've ever read the book June, um. Like June, I don't, know, I don't know if Frank Herbert ever lived out in the Gulf, but uh, I, I think I think quite a lot about June. I think I've read it twice, but it's got that this idea of like water, water being like sacred, is uh, I think I think quite a lot about I think a lot about that here. Uh, the other thing, the, I think the water being sacred and uh, shared, the, the 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 sacredness of a sh- of a shade of a tree. Uh, because it's very, you know, you don't see, you don't, there's not a lot of trees. So when you see a tree, like it really has a real, it's got real power to it that you just take for granted if you're living in like Europe where there's like trees, trees everywhere. And I was saying to Vanessa, uh, like we actually went, went and climbed um, Jebel Shams, which is like the highest mountain in the Gulf. Uh, like I think, I think if you were going to, you know, if you, you've got the seven summits, I think really this in the seven summits, the Gulf region should probably be should probably be separate because you've got you know you've got the separation between Asia and Europe and Africa, and I feel like the Gulf really deserves to have its own its own summit because um, you've got like where well, you got the break between the Suez Canal and you've got Turkey and stuff. I think I think the Gulf should be like a separate summit. And Jebel Shams, it's about three well, it's over about three thousand meters high, and uh we climbed it we climbed it the other day and it's just it's like a 12 mile hike uh, up to the top and uh, there's a there's like a radar station up there like a an Amani like radar station so it's quite um you can actually get to the top which is kind of annoying so you get you're following like a trail it's very well trailed and you're kind of going up there and then you think you're at the top and then you have to go along this ridge that kind of goes up and down up and up, up and down and you get to like what is called the top which actually is actually like 200 you know 299 or something so it's just a little bit lower which is kind of weird that it's not actually the top but um it was one of the it was one of those walks where you we just set off and we just had like i think we had like two liters of, it's like winter time so it's not like mega hot here so we and it's you know, it's kind of high highish altitude but it is it can get super hot here so we uh we just had like i think we just had like a jacket um two liters of water each and uh some tuna mayonnaise and our head touches and we're not very good at getting up at the moment we we, we have a tent that we bought it from decathlon which is a um i don't know if they, I, don't, I doubt they sell them anywhere else but it's basically because designed for like out like deserty hot countries and it's like super uh light light just can't get through the fly sheet so when it's all zipped up it's like like reflective whitish color on the outside black on the inside and you basically it's like being in like a blackout tent basically you, you know you don't know what you don't know it's light until you open the tent so it's quite it's kind of cool so it keeps it keeps it much cooler on the inside of the tent so we um we uh so um, we're not very good at getting up in the morning. We really don't. I really don't like. I get up at like five o'clock, up as five every day anyway. So like, cause I'm kind of on my holidays. I, I've not. I don't like having the alarm on. Anyway, so we we woke up and uh, by by the time we we actually 
camped in one of the like um, Oman is just such an amazing place to visit like I really highly recommend it and we camped at this place which is basically I would say it was like more impressive than the Grand Canyon it's a it's a it's a it's more compact the Grand than the Grand Canyon but it's just like inc- an incredible place and you basically the the culture here in in I'd say that all these of Arab world is basically this culture of like you they really love carpets they're always like they everyone's got a carpet they're just like you know just stop anywhere like you know if you if you were you'd be driving along and someone just like stopped on the roundabout and they would have the carpet out and they'd all be sitting there having some you know mint tea or something so people really love like just stopping in the most random places getting the carpet out and the whole family would be sat on the on the carpet um and even when we were climbing in Saudi Arabia you know people would like in the morning they would get their carpet out and uh they would have like uh like hal you know the people that have like dates and halva and uh bread and stuff so um so uh, anyway so we end up camping like right on the rim literally like 10 feet from the like like going to grand canyon and camping like 10 feet from the edge of the grand canyon and you just drive up there on your 4x4 and anyway really really amazing place um and there's amazing um there's an amazing village down in the canyon itself that you can sort of get to and then there's a via ferrata you can climb up out of this village that i doubt, I doubt many people do um yeah so it's very interesting so the village is like an abandoned village that's interesting that's wasn't one interesting thing as i've been traveling around the last few years i've been going to a lot of um a lot of uh strange kind of sites where you realize that how how you know the idea of like climate change is like something that's it's been the climate's been changing forever you go to all these places and you read about them and how you know like not civilizations but you had like you know communities living in really strange places to us now but how you you read up read up on it and how the climate just sort of changed people couldn't live in this place anywhere anywhere so anyways but Jebel Shams is is a, a walk you, you you camp at this one place and then you uh you uh you head up to Jebel Shams from from this from this area, and anyway, so we ended, being us, we set off late, and we were um, we just been we'd been listening to like uh, Goggins, um, what's his name, Thingy Goggins um, audio book. I've been travelling around, and that's guy. When when I put it on, Vanessa was like, I think she was like, oh god, who's this guy? Because he sounds like a bit of a moron, uh, David Goggins. <laughs> he sounds a bit like me, basically. He sounds like some kind of barely intelligent kind of like. Uh, <laughs> barbarian kind of person so um but anyway so but, but anyway we've been really enjoy, really enjoyed listening to david goggins i think it's called it can't hurt me highly re- highly recommend it really really good book i'll probably i'll have to do i'll probably do like a uh, a more of a review of that book because i think there's some interesting stuff that he doesn't talk about that came to mind when he was talking about himself and stuff anyway so we've listened to david goggins book so we were like we we're getting we were getting on it you know although we were late we said like gave it, david goggins would be put four o'clock and he would you know be running up there but we set off a bit late and uh, all everybody else had already set off by the looks of it so we we set off up the mountain and uh it's like if one of those one of those like rocky trails just like rocks everywhere kind of uh so not good walking when you're when you're tired really that kind of thing you was really gonna break something and we basically like we were just like passing because we were going walking quite quickly we were like passing passing everybody out on the way up and there was this is going to sound this is going to sound bad really but this is like i i i believe in i'm a big fan of um uh, uh stereotypes and things in that generally I think like a stereotype is 
always like 70, 75% true. And, you know, people always give an example how it's not true, but that's just like the, you know, the outlier type things. So generally, uh, and you were walking up this, walking up this mountain and there's fucking bags of crisps, like empty bags of crisps, like on the floor of the trail. And because they're, you know, if you're, if you're a student of litter, like I am, uh, if a bag of crisps is on the trail, it means whoever, whoever dropped it is just in front of you because a bag of crisps doesn't weigh very much. It blows away. And I said to Vanessa, I bet you there's Indian people ahead of us. (laughs) And, um, so I was picking up these bags of crisps and general trash that someone was throwing down. And yes, you know, like a kilometer ahead of us, there was like, like a line of like Indian people um, who were like we were just dressed in like like shorts and like a long shirt and they were like had like down jackets on and everything like really kind of comical but they were really really struggling but um, anyway I probably sometimes like cause it, there was loads of them I couldn't really say like who's who's dropping litter so I just didn't say anything but it's kind of it's kind of annoying um, like I I find I do find uh, that Indian people, uh, people from Bangladesh, that those people are f- fucking terrible at dropping litter. Like absolutely, like terrible. Like culturally, I don't know what is go- what is going on. Um, like I find, uh, I find that most most a lot of people I talk to, um, Arab people, are kind of uh, they kind of get it. Like uh, some people really. Like, you know, like like British people like hate themselves. They absolutely hate themselves. They detest themselves. They detest everything about themselves. They detest their history and their culture. And you know, they but they do actually. But they love, they love the countryside. <laughs> they love their, their their nature and things. So they actually take have a lot of pride uh, in keeping trying to keep things nice. You know, you'll see, you'll see one. Um, you know, one nappy like on the floor next in a car park uh, in like the Peak District or Wales or somewhere, and it's like it's like a it's like an outrage, it's like an abomination, it's like it's like the genocide of, of nature or something, and uh, and the reason the reason we find it so offensive, like any kind of litter, is because there's hardly any litter anywhere. Like it's not like we live in a you know if you live in the UK or Ireland or Germany or wherever. Um, I'll, I'll ignore Spain because that's kind of quite literary. Um, you know, like you know, any kind of litter is like, oh my god, that's like the wet. You know, it ruins your whole day. Well, anyway, if you come to uh, the Arab world, it, in a lot of countries, there's like just shit loads of litter, like a thousand plastic bottles. Like you go to a campsite, there'll be a thousand plastic bottles like everywhere. There'll be just shit everywhere. There'll be cars that have burnt out. There'll be like, it's like horrendous, really. And so you have to really readjust your 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 life, you know, your your brain to that. Um, but a man, a man is kind of different. Like a man is, uh, but but the, but the weird thing is that people like love, like I would say, like generally in the Gulf region, and not and not not sorry, think about other places, but generally people have this amazing love of their culture and of their religion and of the 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 sultan and everything else you know if you see a if you'll see a picture of the the sultan or whoever the you know whoever's ruling over the country like hanging down somewhere uh, people will walk along and they will they'll touch it you know like it really means a lot to a lot of people and some people get it like a spot swamp to some people 
and they're like why do people drop litter like why do people you know make such a mess and they really really and, and i think it's probably the same like growing up in the 70s people you know people didn't really care people like there was a lot more litter around and you know, people literally had the idea that i remember once walking along with a mate of mine and he had a he was eating a pizza and he just got the pizza box and he just shoved it into someone's hedge in their house and i was like what the hell are you doing he's like oh that's it's people's jobs that gives people work like leaving litter and people literally say that to me here like the same kind of thing like oh well if i didn't drop litter then who's going to pick it up do you know what I mean? So um, I'm 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 going off topic here, but uh, but yeah, but I find I do I do find like I hate to say it, I do find like Indian people from India do do have no like you'll just see them just walking along, just like just throwing the litter on the floor. You'll see people having like a picnic in a really beautiful spot, and literally they'll have like a big you know thing and have rice in it, like a big um, you know like. Uh, metal container you know like a disposable container and they'll pull the rice out and they'll just throw it like literally throw it behind them like into the over a hedge or something and yeah i find it kind of depressing but i guess it's a it's like a process isn't it of uh you know if you go to india you'll see why why it's like that but um but yeah zero 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 tolerance so um anyway so we passed these passed these people up um and uh we 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 thought we got because we were going quite quickly we got to where we thought the top was going to be and that wasn't the top we didn't have a map or anything so we started going along this ridge and the ridge was going up and down up and down up and up and down and eventually eventually we got to the top and that was really really cool and we met this uh one of the indian climbers was like we we kind of caught him up on the ridge and he was like really it looked like really really knackered it really made me think about how you know, like non-climbers, they just don't get. They just don't get this idea of that you're only halfway there. You know, like they're 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 literally, and they can hardly walk. And they've got like they've got basically got to do a 24 mile day. You know, and they're on like mile 11 on top of this mountain, and they're they're just in a state. And it's like Christ, man, like turn around, I just start going back down. So anyway, we got to the top, and it was quite funny because this guy. He suddenly, like, as soon as he got to the summit, he just, like, sprang to life. And he was, like, taking all these, like, selfies. And he was, like, he was almost like a Bollywood film. Like, he wanted, he had all these, you know, he was like a spoof of an Indian person. Like, he was, like, he was just doing all these pauses. And he got me to take, I said, oh, I'll take a photograph of you. And he wasn't, he wasn't just, like, just take a photograph of him, like, standing on the summit. He wanted me to take photographs of him, like, laying against the trig point, you know, like, looking like he was tired, like, with his, like, you know, like, those kind of, uh, like, Hollywood um, photographs, you know, you'd have your for your aid, you know, to hand out. Um, you know, he was, like, he had his hands, like, his face in his hands, and he was, like, doing all these, like, videos of himself. It was, like, hilarious. And then there was another guy there who was a Kuwaiti, uh, no, it was a Omani soldier, who was up there but um and he was like the guy was like have you got any med have you got any pain relief and he's like oh yeah yeah so the so the guy was like doling out like pain relief to this indian guy and then he had this like kind of deep heat and the guy, indian guy was going off and like spraying himself i don't even know what deep heat does but spraying himself and i was like oh christ almighty like both of them looked like in a total state and this soldier guy had like this really really looked like really big desert boots on which looked way too big for his feet and he just looked 
just seeing him struggling. He's so, so we were sitting on the summit and the the two of them started walking down and this, this guy was like really, really struggling walking down, the Omani guy. And he got within about 200 meters away and then he ran all the way back up and he was like, oh, I didn't get a selfie. And then he took his selfie and then he like staggered back away, back again. And I was like, oh God, this is going to be a, this is going to be like a shit show going down there for all these people. So anyway, so we, we took our photographs. Um, I went down the trail and just all of, all the people we'd passed coming up None of them had. None of them got to the. None of them got to the top. They'd all turned around, and as you're passing them, passing them out, they all. It looked like some um, ret- the retreat from Russia, Napoleon's armies retreating from from Moscow or something. Um, like everyone was like staggering, and they had like fucking miles to go. You know, they had like ten miles to go, and they were like staggering, and those people with sticks, and they were like, "Have you got any?" Uh, do you have any pain relief? Do you have got any medicine or anything? We're like, no, we haven't. Sorry, and um, kept on going. And uh, and as we're going, there was we started picking up as much litter as we could because there isn't there isn't a lot of litter on that mountain, so it's kind of it's more obvious. But we managed to get uh, one of these giant, like fifty litre. Somehow there's a fifty litre ginormous like water container up there. So I managed to like strap that onto my rucksack and was going down and picking up more bags of crisps and stuff. So these people were like littering coming up, which we were picking up the litter. And when I was going down, they were like littering going down. So I was like picking up litter coming up behind them. And uh, so yeah, so anyway, so we we passed them all out and we we uh, we got back down, got back down to the um, to the to the car just as it was getting just as it was getting dark. We didn't really take enough water. You basically need we need a bit bit more water. It was as we're walking down, we found a, there was a plastic bag. It had like about four two-liter bottles of water in it, and it had like a can of coke in it. And we'd pass some guys coming up with like big rucksacks on. And Vanessa was like, "Oh God, let's drink. Maybe we should drink some of that water." And I was like, "It was like no, I think maybe they've stashed that water, but they didn't stash it very well. So maybe we should maybe we should stash it." We were like, "No, no, we'll just we'll just keep on going. We can get down without drinking any of that water." And then. Um, so it was like this, this what would what would Goggins do? That's kept, we kept saying that, what would Goggins do? Anyway, so we managed to get down. Went but went to our camping spot uh in the dark. Really, really amazing, beautiful night. Uh anyway, then we're looking up and you can just see all these lights coming down in the dark of these Indian people like coming down the mountain. And I'm sure like some of them end up sleeping up there. Uh it's like very warm, they're not gonna die. Uh and uh, Vanessa's like do you think we should think we should do something? And I'm like, no, I don't think we should do anything. Like, they're not going to die, and they're littering bastards. It'll serve them right. So, so I always have this idea that the more you, the more you like pick up other people's litter, the more you, you know, like seeing litter is an excuse. Like if you just if you look at the litter and it makes you really angry, but you don't do anything about it, then you're just as kind of complicit anywhere. So I think I, I think. I, I got that from my dad probably. I remember like as a kid going walking with my dad and he would like pick up other people's litter and it just becomes a thing. And it becomes almost like a it becomes a thing where you just think this is giving me good the mountain will appreciate this, you know. I I I won't be the one who's like, you know, <laughs> got horrendous uh um, blisters and you know and having to sleep out all night long, you know, um in the rocks. So so yeah. So yeah, but anyway, we've been climbing, been climbing and traveling out here, and the climbing is 
okay. Like I've not we've not been climbing much this year, so I'm gonna have a quick drink of my tea. One second. Um, um, yeah, not been we've not been climbing that much, and the grades kind of go up and down. So I was like failing on like five five tens and things and uh it's always kind of depressing i've got like a hole in my boot i've got i wear like tc pros and whenever i go away somewhere like this i always seem to have like a hole in my boots um and uh that's so that was an excuse having a hole in my boots but uh, i'm quite I'm, I'm quite good at like slab climbing but a lot of the climbing here is like limestone it's a bit steeper so i'm not very i'm not very good at that kind of thing so uh but yeah i've been, been to some interesting interesting places i wouldn't say this was the place to come you know if you were like you know um alex magos or somewhere this is probably not the place to come but for adventurous you know driving to some wadi you know doing some climbing you know just sleeping out in the desert um yeah it's like really really cool uh, really a really really cool place to uh to visit it's probably getting a bit too hot now um, but a lot of the wadis where you climb are in places that are like in shad in shady areas, and we climbed at somewhere which is must be getting on for like two thousand two thousand five hundred meters, uh, and it's actually quite cold in the sun, and it gets windy, and it can get really cold out here. Um, right, you know, you should never underestimate how cold it can get in the you know sort of deserty, arid, arid places. Uh, I guess I should mention the virus again. Um, uh, when we were in Saudi, basically we didn't want to go go to the country we we're living in because it all sounded a bit fucked up, and we didn't want to get, go into quarantine. Or basically, you know, I think I think one one thing about this virus, I think it like shows two things. It shows about the it shows about the how out of control the media is, which is something I'm always talking about. Um, you know, it kind of feeds into this whole, you know, there's a, there's a lot of money in panic and uh, hysteria, basically, is getting people, getting your customer base, like, you know, it's like it's like Cabbage Patch Kids, you know what I mean? You know, tell everyone this, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing, like people go fucking crazy, you know, trying to buy the latest thing at Christmas. This is, a, I see this as a similar kind of thing. Like 1.6 million people die every year of, obese, of um, diabetes, which is primarily caused by you know diet poor shit dietary advice but no one's talking no one ever talks about shit like that you know so um there's no you know there's no money in it um so yeah so we and the other thing is kind of uh it's it's i guess it's uh what do you call it um uh you know kind of like what's it uh, not corporate cowardice institutional cowardice basically like everyone is is uh trying to cover their asses that so they did the right thing you know they were going to close the borders you know we're gonna we're gonna make sure everyone stays in the houses you know all all this all this kind of you know, it's like people like i'm gonna prove that i'm the you know uh, so no one's ever gonna you know question me or gonna get into trouble about it so instead of instead of people saying like look people are gonna die we can't do anything about it you know we can try our best but you know it's impossible impossible situation um we're just gonna have to we're gonna have to try the, our best and uh and that's it and all people are gonna die you know that's that's how it is you know that's how it is it's not the black death <laughs> it's not ebola 
and um, calm the fuck down, basically. But no one's going to say that because you know, oh my god, that'd be terrible. So anyway, so we we have to we have to decide. We didn't want to go back to this where we live because uh, it'd just be a shit show, basically. And um, the, the the you know this the whole the whole Stalin thing of no people, no problem. Like this is a really good example of it. Is when you're in like the the biggest danger of the virus is to do with people and institutions and how they handle it. So you you really want to be in a place where there's as few people as possible. Ideally, you want to be in a country which has about four million four million people or less. Um, and Vanessa was like, "Why don't we go to Turkey?" Because uh, it's like, and I was like, "No, let's not go to Turkey. Like Turkey has got like eighty million people in it. Um, let's go to a country where there's not many people. Like four million people is my. I reckon a country with between four and five million people is the ideal size of a country. So think of like Norway." island there's like i think the thing about a country that's four four million people is like is is like perfect and have them all spread out like don't have, don't have like four million people living in like one place you know <laughs> in one city like a city state in like a QA or something like that you want to you want to have them all you want to have all those people spread out so so yeah so we came we came here so that was um you know obviously i've only seen one person with a mask on uh here um in the supermarket so no, it's kind of a you know, I think I think basically you'll, you'll get this fatigue where people are like, "Fuck, we can't do anything about this. We'll just have to go. We'll just have to run with it." And um, people just can't. Well, they'll just have to calm the fuck down. You can't. You can't. You can't stop it. But I do find that I do find the thing about self isolation. The idea of self isolation is a really. It's a really great term because I think we we are living in a self isolating society anyway. In the, do you know if you go to like if you go to a supermarket and they have all these like automatic checkouts, you don't have to have to deal with the human being. I think people tend tend gen, tend to gravitate to those anyway because I think we don't actually like to interact with people so much. You know this idea of being we're all like really atomized. Um, you know we're atomized from our. You notice it here because people are so family orientated. Like the pillars of Saudi Saudi society is like religion and family. And you know, the 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 culture is like totally different. You know that's why you have a carpet. You know that's why you have a big carpet that you carry around with you. Not literally, but you have a big carpet so the whole family can get on the carpet. Where you know in the West, you know you probably just need like a a bath towel. You know because there's only you really. You're the only person that matters. You know you have no time for your parents or your your kids or you know you're just you're self isolating the whole time, totally atomized. You live. You know, a thousand miles from your mum and ten thousand miles from your dad, and you you never speak to your kids, and you 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 know you you live with this person, but you're always on your mobile phone, and you're always distracted about other shit going on in your life. So, you know, I think we're kind of self isolating, and I think increasingly we're probably self isolating within ourselves. Like we, the, you know, the, this whole thing, you know, you know, white privilege, all that kind of shit. It's basically, it's it's basically making you. You know, like separating yourself from yourself in a way, you know, like hating yourself or, you know, any, you know, that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about. So, um, so yeah, so, so yes, yeah, so the virus thing, yeah, it'd be funny. I bet no one, I bet it won't even be a thing, you know, in a month's time, it'll just be, it'll be a nothing. It'd be like World War Three that was going to happen not long ago. Um, but I'll just mention the book, um, the down book. So I've had to like, I've had to like, I've had to kind of like take two weeks off, try to finish that off. 
And at the moment, I'm just trying to, I've been trying, I've been doing like the layout of the book, which seems to be taking me a long time. And I think the reason was I've tried to make it, I've tried to make it too fancy, like the layout. I should have, I should just have like, just like text images, text images, do it that way. Uh, and I've tried to make it look a bit too nice and whatever. And it's, and it's, and it's one of these things where when you're laying a book out, you know, you're laying it out and suddenly you're like, oh, I think the font is too small. And then you you change the font and then everything has to be changed. And then you're like, oh, the headings don't look, look quite right. And I can't really tell the hierarchy of the text. And you change a heading and everything everything goes. So it's just been a bit of a nightmare of like, of making sort of stupid mistakes and not having a real solid base for this book. So I'm having to sort of go back a little bit and just make it a little bit more a little bit simpler um and also i'm still getting like feedback from uh from people so i I, I sent out some some chapters of the book to people for uh just just to get some uh feedback and also get some quotes for the book so i had a a good quote from (coughs) pete whittaker and and various people um but sean o'driscoll um I can't remember his, I can't remember his pronounced his proper name. You know, like Ace Belgian rock climbing dude. Uh, so he had, a, he had he had an interesting thing. He was saying about using fishing line. Um, so in really, really windy conditions is uh, when you're pulling the rope down, usually when you're pulling the, when the rope goes through the anchor at the top, the abseil anchor, is if it's super windy, then the end of the rope generally like whips off and it can very easily get caught on a rock or something. If you're in Patagonia or in bad weather... So he he had this thing about using fishing line where you attach fishing line to the end of the rope. So as you're pulling the rope down, it's, it's attached to this fishing line. So so the, so the rope just comes down on the fishing line. And you carry about 200 meters of fishing line, like on a, a reel or something. And then you sort of reel it all back in again. Um, it sounds a bit crazy. but So that's the kind of thing. I know I, I, know I, I have to add that, add that to the book. So... It's one of these. It's one of these projects. I just cannot wait to get this fucking book finished, because I've got lots, lots of other books I want to get on with, and uh, it's just it, and and lots of people waiting for this book. Now this book must be like at least a year, a year late now. So I do apologise. It will be worth it. Like I think this book's going to be a game changer for a lot of like new climbers um, and things, and and people like Sean and people who are uh, Paul Pritchard. You know, they've all said even just I only sent them like one chapter, but they're like, oh, like they learned like there was stuff in it they didn't know and stuff. So, so yeah, so I, I, I really want to get on with this. I want to get, I want to do this, this kids book, um, Superlexia, it's called, which is kind of like a, you know, book about a book for kids, like a, you know, how old, what kind of kid, age kids would be, um. And uh, and I want to get on with this bear pit book, this kind of fictional book that I've half written. So, so I do apologise. Uh, I'm going. Uh, I should be back working on this in about like a week or something. And I'm just gonna, like, I feel like I've been like hammering hammering at it for like forever, like just like twelve twelve hour days on it for like forever, and it just seems to just not not be getting finished. But anyway. Um, on the subject of writing, it was funny. I just, I just, I'll just, I'll just mention this, but because uh, uh, I've done a few podcasts about relationships and and that kind of thing, I've had like a, I've probably never had so much um, 
uh, feedback or like you know people's um, saying nice things or, ask, or you know like responding to stuff I've done as I have with these with these podcasts so I really appreciate that um, <laughs> even if you just like it they're shit um, and uh, and I was responding to somebody uh, about something um, relationship kind of stuff because I find I find really I find I'm really interested in in relationships and things because I think that's you know I think I think we're really bad at um, a friend of mine she was doing something uh, on Radio Four or, or some BBC Radio thing uh, about um, what was it about women women apologize more than men and all this kind of stuff and I said like how men yeah men just kill themselves. Um, but if it, but it, I've got this idea, uh, this thing that human beings are really, really bad at communicating, and we put like too much value onto what people say uh, because we don't even understand the real meaning or the value of what we're saying. We just go through the motions. We're just like saying the things that people want to hear, uh, and the things we want to say, the things we want to hear us say, but they have no real truth to them. Whatever. Like we're really, we're not very. We're very bad at communicating as humans. Very, we're very good at sending a signal, but we're very bad at interpreting signals. And even the even the machinery that is creating that signal to send is pre, is generally pretty. You know, it's not it's not very good. It's not very sophisticated. Um, like even if it was, you probably would never say anything. You're probably just trying. To, you're probably just trying to deal with it, really. Because if you're sending a signal out like a mayday. And the people who are responding are sending back, you know, like a response that is probably just as just as dangerous, or is going to put you into more harm than anywhere. What's the point? Just just work it out for yourself. But um, but yeah, but I just I wrote something in this email to someone, and then I just thought it was it was kind of in, it was a it's a good point to make, so I just like stuck it on on Instagram, and I just had a picture of a boot I'd seen on a beach somewhere, like an army boot. So I just put that image up there and then put the some often you have like some words and you don't have anything that fits it so sometimes just something that's random just stick it up there and i just said like people who don't know what they want most often don't want what they have once they have it and it's a kind of a simple it's a simple kind of thing we do meet a lot of people i i've 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 been i've i've been like this myself where you're kind of very you're very confused and you really driven to get this thing in your life, like a person or a relationship or whatever. Um, but soon as, but the the confusion, like if you really want something, you generally you do, you always got to ask yourself why. You, like in the last podcast, I was asking saying about why does someone want to go climbing with you? You know what reason? What reason is they for them want to go climbing with you? Like you should really think about it. And what's the reason you want? to be with somebody or have a relationship with somebody or own something or climb something or get that job, whatever. Like, it's really good to really don't bullshit yourself, like, really, um, really dig down, down into it. Um, like, I remember, like, a, a, I remember once I was, like, this, I was, like, really obsessed once with this, uh, this woman and someone like a long time in my life uh met this met this woman just like randomly from this thing anyway and i was i remember just i think i probably i thought in my head i'd kind of fallen in love with this person and uh and just kind of 
just just kind of kind of became a little bit obsessed you know but i was married i was married at the time so nothing nothing actually happened with this thing but you had all these like but this and this person just kind of came and then disappeared out of my life and uh just moved to another moved somewhere else or whatever and i just became kind of fixated with this woman and and i'd sometimes have dreams and this woman being in my dreams or whatever and it was it was like it would make me really sad and depressed thinking about this woman because she represented something that was wrong with my own marriage and and whatever and and it was and it was over such a long period that I couldn't even remember what this woman looked like but it, but she kind of represented something in my life and just thought about it so much and I'd like sometimes I'd be walking through Sheffield and I'd just be like just hoping I would bump into her because because to to meet her and see her would be like the most amazing thing the most amazing gift it'd be like it's hard I can't even put into words how it would feel like if anyone's felt like this about, about somebody else you know this, but men men are much more much more obsessive like this than than women women don't seem to have this in them and i'd be interested to dig down why this is and but anyway like but like years and years later maybe like 15 years later i i was you know i got divorced and i'm i'm single and i um and I was like really trying to, I mean, you know, when you get divorced, it's like the worst thing that's ever going to happen. One of the worst things in your life, apart from your kids dying or something. And uh, I was like really trying to sort out my shit, like sort out what was going on with myself. Because when, because really like you should really work out what's, what, what was the problem? You know, why did you get in this position where you end up getting divorced and everything else? Like don't make the same mistakes again. Like don't just go through life making the same fucking mistakes. So I ended up like somehow I managed to get the contact details of this woman, and and I sent her this email. I was like, I was like, hi, you probably don't even remember me, and blah blah blah. I met you all these years ago, and uh, and for some reason I was like, I got like totally obsessed with you, and I don't know why, and uh, and I'd really like to like just like put a line underneath that. I'd love to like meet you sometime, and this is not kind of weird. I'm not going to kill you or stalk you, or whatever. But it'd just be like kind of. It'd be that like, be good to just have one of these things in your life that you just put a line through, and um, so 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 yes, yeah, so I threw in mutual friend, and she and kind of got this re- reply like, oh, I've just finished in this like long term relationship, and I've just moved back to Sheffield, and yeah, it'd be like really cool to meet up or something. So I was like, so this is like, this is like super me being like super brave here because it's not really in, in my style really so we we sort of met, we met up and we had a we had a drink and stuff and uh so we we're gonna have some food or something we had some food and and blah 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 and um and it was like really weird like she was still like this really really great person whatever but this, this she was in no way this person that i had i had i had thought she was and then um and then anyway, so the end, the, the night, the night finished, and I give her a hug. So I go, oh, it's been great to meet you. Thanks for me. Anyway, so we we walked off, and then um, and then I felt like this kind of amazing, uh, amazing fe- amazing feeling of like like just dealing with this shit. And then the next day, I was in the park with my kids, and I bump into her, and uh, it's like weird. You know, you go through like fifteen years like trying to bump into this person, and you like bump into her like the next day, and um, so we like talking again and everything and i'm being like mr dad all that kind of stuff anyway i went away and then this and then this the friend of mine got in touch with me who'd, who'd got us in touch to, together and she's like oh by the way like you know i think he saw you the other day and she, you know maybe you should like 
you know, keep keep after it because you know maybe you might you know I think she likes you whatever. And I'm like nah, you know. <laughs> so 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 people are so weird. Like you know what I mean, like why? That's the thing. You just have to try and dig down into this kind of shit in your life, and uh, and it's nothing to often it's nothing to do with that person. So this person who want who's totally obsessed with you or whatever or you're totally obsessed with them or you know it's, it's nothing to do with you or them like as soon as they as soon as they get what they want that's not what there's nothing to do with that at all and it'll just get wet it'll just they'll just they'll just go, you know make things worse whatever so, so anyway so 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 i shared that little bit of uh advice about you know you do what you want to decide what you really want and uh and uh, I had like a, an email from someone saying how it like this thing had come at exactly the right time in their lives um, to read that. I don't know what was going on in their lives, but it's it's funny about write, writing and um, trying trying to be honest when you write. You know when you in these things is how it can have it just has to it just has to just arrive at the right at the right time in someone else's life. You know it's like why would why would you even why would I just post that and just arrives at the same time someone else's life that they need to they need to hear that? So those kind of interventions is it an intervention? I don't know. But I've always I've always really appreciated people who who just said the truth to me. People who knew how to communicate and they just said the truth to me. They just said like, You're a fucking coward or you know, or whatever. Like I remember Ian Parnell once told me I was a coward and it was probably one of the best bits of advice uh you know like you're this person can do all this like really really extreme kind of shit and be really brave but deep down you're a coward and uh, i'm sure ian probably even remember saying this but like that really hurt me but it was like the best advice you know and and the people in my life people like you know like dick temple and you know various people in my life the people who've who uh, some people are actually almost like strangers but we have these kind of we had like interactions through emails over the last you know over, over years and years and years and that, that even you know never really met them but the, you know some people are just really good at like snapping you out of it of making you you know you know stopping you from bullshitting yourself really who just know how to send that signal you know send that kind of correct signal that you cannot in misinterpret so keep it simple don't be too like when you're dealing with people who are having like relationship problems I always think you want to keep any kind of interaction with them down to like a paragraph or a line because you're just feeding something there's a negative force in them they just want to talk about it forever um so yeah so so anyway so back so onto the climbing stuff so um so I need I really I've been thinking about I need to break this podcast down into different different podcasts completely have a completely separate podcast three podcasts one which is like this and then one it's just about the the geary type of stuff and one that's about nothing to do with climate whatsoever but as ever i just can't be asked i just can't get around to doing it so uh vanessa's gone off for a run this morning so i have to get this done before she gets back so it's uh it is what it is so anyway so so we're going to finish off with um question this question quite a few questions about um climbing partners finding climbing partners and uh as ever <clears throat> i'm not gonna 
I'm just going to, I've just I've looked at my blog, see if I've written anything about climbing partners. And I did have a, a, a climbing partner related question on there. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to read you the, uh, the, the, the reply. So I've, as usual, I've not done my due diligence. I've not actually read this reply. I've not read what I've written. So I'm just going to read it out now. And uh, maybe there'll be something of interest in there. So, so this is my uh, reply to that. So anyway, um, people often ask me why I used to solo as much. Alex Huber, uh, who's no mean soloist himself, even going as far as suggest it was some form of self-sabotage. Um, in reality, the reason for all these solo trips, the troll wall, climbing the Alps, Yosemite, was that I either just couldn't find anyone to climb with, um, thought myself or thought myself too crap to climb with good people that might go, or did not trust those who were available to climb. Um, so yeah, so bit, I'll, I'll just <laughs> so basically three reasons for me is that it's actually it's actually quite hard to find people to climb with sometimes if you want to go where it's sometimes hard to climb, find find people to climb with you know if you want to go climbing along on a saturday or something but if you want to go to you know climb denali or climb Aconcagua, it's like really really hard and that's often why people go on these organized trips or have a guide even because they can just pay to go with somebody else and it, it just makes it easier but it's always much it's way more it's way better to to have a climbing partner and that's one of the most important aspects of climbing probably you know people talk about your training and stretching and all that kind of stuff but no one ever talks about the climbing partner and having a good climbing partner someone who you feel is better than you and they feel you're better than them is like really really important um uh like super super important because even if you don't do anything you'll have so much more fun uh and some climbing partnerships don't work out very well like i i climbed with paul ramsden um, quite a few times went on trips to like Alaska and you know all, all sorts of places Patagonia and stuff and I think we came to the conclusion that we were actually not very good at climbing together because I think we both thought the other person was too good in a way I don't, I don't maybe maybe Paul doesn't agree but I always thought that Paul was too good for me and then we went to try and climb the Harlan on the Eiger and he said that I think maybe just I think he said something that it made me think that oh god he maybe he thinks I'm better than he is or something <laughs> so I think we just put a line under that but then Paul you know Paul is like a great a great climb and this climbed really well with uh Nick Bullock and you know won loads of Pele doors and stuff but sometimes you just cancel each other out really and then another aspect is um feeling you're too crap to climb with other people now I know people who uh a uh, friend of mine, Jane, who like soloed El Cap and all, and people like that, who, you know, people think they're they're like these super hardcore people, but really they just think they're too shit to climb with anybody else, and they'd rather just bumble their way up of these things, or, um, you know, just, just no one can see how shit you are when you're by yourself, and how you just, you know, weak and feeble, and uh, you can go at your own pace. You know, there's nothing worse than being tied to someone who's a bit faster than you if you're on a glacier or something. So, so that's that's another aspect of it um and there's also like basically often the people who want to go climb with you you just don't trust them you just don't you don't trust their motives you don't trust the fact that 
they will not just get to somewhere and just flake out or lose their you know they have these kind of romantic notions of what climbing is um and those those people like kind of walter mitty kind of characters that's like basically there's more walter mitty's in the world than there is not so um you know so it's it's uh you know those people are not not good to climb with those kind of people um it'll promise you the world and you'll get there and it'll they won't deliver anything and they'll just you know they, they could kill you or whatever or they could kill themselves and uh those kind of people are worth avoiding and there's lots of them generally americans um so i'll keep on reading in the past there was a small pool of climbers you could try and link you could link up with um ian parnell and paul ramson being the people i climbed with a lot but as they get older, they either stop going on big trips or work, family, curtailed the number or length of trips, or they just wanted to different objectives. For example, after trying the hauling with Paul, he just said, I'll leave this stuff up to you and switch mainly to high-altitude mountaineering as it fitted better with his life. So there you go, that's that story. Um, the pool of climbers has leagues, Premier, First Division, Second Division, and once you begin to establish yourself, establish yourself in one league by some hard climbs you might be able to find someone to play with examples of this are young climbers like Callum Musket or Tom Livingstone who in doing some hard routes like Divine Providence or the Long Hope route for example appear on the radar of older climbers who think maybe they can piggyback their ambition on a younger climber's drive Patrick Gabaru is a great example of this as well as Twid Turner the older climber takes the younger climber on and the younger climber picks up all the stuff they need to know beyond the purely technical, that mountain sense. Yeah, so that 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 is, uh, like I think Paul Ramson's going on a trip soon with two like young um, young climbers uh, to, to Nepal, I think. And that kind of, that seems to have been away for a long time. And I'm sure like, like Nick Bullock is like a phenomenal climber, phenomenal mountaineer. But I know that Nick Bullock has learned like shit shitload from Paul Ramsden. Now Paul Ramsden is probably younger than younger than Nick Bullock. And Paul Ramsden looks like he's about a thousand years old. Um, like when I first met Paul Ramsden, I think he was the same age as me, but he looked like he was about forty years old. He just got that kind of look about him, and he's been climbing. I think he climbed the Eiger, Northwest Eiger when he was like eighteen or nineteen, and he's just got like phenomenal amount of experience. And um, I'm sure Nick. Nick like learnt a lot from like Paul Ramsden, and it's the same. You know, so Twid I mentioned that Twid Turner is the same. Um, you know, like so it's it's very important to to go climbing with older climbers, and you I know and often and younger climbers as well. Like younger climbers will push you as an older climber. Uh, you know, you just you just they just do really. Like I know like Vanessa, my wife is like twelve years younger than me or something, and she like pushes me you know so it's it's very um you know it's like it's it's very important um i'll probably i'll probably be saying all this and i'll just I'll just be appearing in my uh in what i'm writing anyway so age is not always a factor as nick bullock and paul ramson's partnership has worked out well and although both are the same age and both are hardcore in their way paul is a very wide mountain experience doing it since he was a kid where nick started in his 30s this means both bring something to the partnership that works out and often stuff that's far removed and important from the purely physical. Finding your partners often seems to be, a, to be able to be about establishing links early 
State University. And although I, don't, although I didn't go to university, almost all the great Alpine climbers of my generation did and some formed some very strong partnerships that way. Once they dispersed, each would pick up new partners and these, in turn, would be added to the group, one member vouching for the new blood. So for me, growing up in... Well, you know, cl- growing up as a climber in Sheffield, you had two. You had two groups basically. You had uh, the kind of the well, you had three. You had the, the Leeds climbers, the Sheffield climbers, and like the Edinburgh climbers. They were like the three main ones. So you had uh, like Jamie Fisher, uh, is it Jamie Chif- Jamie Andrews, and um, uh, uh, I think you uh, Jules Cartwright and people up in up in Scotland, and you had uh, the Benson twins and Rich Cross and Al Powell and Kenton Cool, and all all these people like in this kind of these separate like university people. You know, some of them went on like Kenton became like super guide, and you know, some amazing um, amazing climbers, and uh, and yeah, so they, they they would just kind of pick up. You know, they had this core of really really cool climbers. And then they would like I think the the Leeds lot they went off to try and climb the Auger and stuff you know went to university so super 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 good climbers and nearly all those climbers went on to become mountain guides or they died like it's interesting nearly all the um, Edinburgh climbers uh, died um, I don't know why that is so um, so yeah so 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 starting these like really strong relationships early on and also it's kind of very promiscuous is that you know people will once they know that you you can climb well with somebody else then they will often um they will often get in touch and climb with other people so like kenton would be climbing with you know with, with various people you know he was climbing with like ian parnell and uh nick bullock and al, al powell and various people and it's very you know there's like a, a group of people for some reason apart from apart from uh ian parnell like i think I never seem to be very good at like establishing like uh, good climbing partnerships with people, and I think it's mainly one reason is is I'm a bit of a weirdo, and uh, probably people thought that I would just um, just say shit about them, probably like I would like you know write about them or whatever. So there's various reasons why that why these things happen. <laughs> Maybe that's why I end up solving things. Um, so yeah. So climbing with strangers can be dangerous on single pitch crags. So big gnarly routes is out of the question. It's not as if it's not if you, but not if you know something about them. For example, when I tried the Russian route on the Eiger, I had never met my two climbing partners until the day we set off. But I knew Neil had climbed some really hard walls, climbed in Patagonia, while Ross had less experience, who had less experience, had been in the Royal Marines and worked as a mountain leader. Yes, that was weird, going to the Eiger. I was supposed to be going with um, uh, um, Aldo Kane, who's like getting quite famous now, and his twin brother. And I climbed El Cap with Aldo, and I really, I really liked him. And he wasn't like super experienced for doing something on the northwest of the Eiger, like spending like three weeks on the northwest of the Eiger, on trying to do this Russian route. But I, I knew we'd have a good time, so that was more important. You know, it's like... It's like a lot, a lot of climbing partners, partnerships. It's if you're going on a long thing, it's like can you get on with somebody? And someone told me that was how um, some 
Norwegian friend who's like Norwegian special forces. He said that that was a big thing when you're interviewing people. It's like, could I could I spend like a month in a in a snow hole with this person? Doesn't matter how how strong they are or whatever. It's like, can I can I just go on with this person? And I was supposed to be going there with with Aldo and his twin brother. And I thought, well, I know Aldo, so his twin brother's going to be exactly the same. And what what happened was um, Aldo ended up breaking his shoulder like the week before. So I had to find someone else. I ended up finding uh, Neil, uh, Neil Charlton, who was like super hardcore, like big wall climber. But it turned out he'd never done any like winter climbing before and he'd never even put crampons on, I don't think. And so I ended up like meeting them in Kleiner Scheidegg or something and having never met them before, either of them, and going up on the Russian route on the Eiger, which is probably the hardest route on the northwest of the Eiger, and being up there for like a week. And uh, we, had a really gr- we had a really great time, but we, did, we didn't do it. So... Um, but yeah, but the, so the, so it can it can I I've I've actually climbed with a shitload of people who I hadn't I had never met before so so a lot of this is probably isn't actually um doesn't really appropriate so um uh but a little, little, so I did this the first time I climbed El Cap in a day with two nineteen year old guys who just met at the base they had the experience and drive but just didn't see themselves as ready to climb El Cap in a day um uh. When I did, I was not too concerned if we had, if we just had to push the top if we didn't make it. If you feel you can carry a climb on your shoulders, leading every pitch and take on apprentices, then this is a great way of getting on hard routes. For example, Cedar Wright just asked about my route on Ulvatana, maybe wanting to repeat it with Alex Honnold and Koronanka, a heavy hitting team, when the route was climbed by a team who had pretty much never climbed before. So yeah, so when I went to Ulvatana in Antarctica, you know, never climbed with them. Sorry, need to open the door for my wife to get back in. Um, you'd never climb with any of those any of those people. And oh God, I'm I'm going mobile now. This is amazing. I'm going mobile. I'm still doing my podcast. So um, you know, never climbed with any any of those. Well, I climbed with Alex 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 Gamma, but never climbed with any of those people. So you find yourself in this super extreme place on this super extreme climb with absolute strangers so but that that kind of takes a lot of um experience i guess of having to, of climbing with 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 people you don't know uh if you cannot find climbing partners like this then things can be tough searching through ukc is probably not the way for anything gnarly but joining a facebook group like uk big wall climbing might be better the problem is often climbers have very little time and don't want to take a chance on an unknown and risk the chance of that person being a, a logjam or just being deluded. Yosemite is full of climbers who have teamed up with the wrong partner who just falls on day one or as soon as things get tough. The one safe way to find, a cl- to find partners is to go to a climbing club for a long enough, for a lo- a long enough time to establish a small reputation that you're not deluded or will be a logjam. The best place, oh no, climbing hub, not climbing club. The best place for this, of course, would be Yosemite, as living cheek to jowl with so many climbers makes this connection easier. Somewhere like Chamonix, Squamish, El Chaltan, Boulder, Sheffield, Springdale would be next. But here climbers are more fragmented and in tribes. So I'd probably add, I'd probably add you know, places like... Um, you know, places like uh, uh, Rapalese, 
you know, it's like there's a there's a place where you could just go and you would start establishing climbing partnerships with people. And you, if you can stay, like one of the best things to do as a climber, I reckon, is to is to go to a, a Rapalese for like three months. You know, packing your job, go to Rapalese for three months, just live in a Rapalese, uh, and just meet you know just meet climbers there. There's like shitloads of climbers, and often you'll meet climbers, and they'll have friends. And once you climb with them, then their friends will turn up, and you climb with them, and then they'll, and you just end up like climbing like that. You meet other people who are there for a long time, and you'll. So that's a very good way of like establishing this, you know, like a resume, you know. And then you go back, and people, you know, get a an Instagram account, a photographs of you doing punks in the gym, you know. Oh, some punks in the gym. You must be quite a good climber, and you know, establishing that kind of a resume of uh, of things. Um, like when you when you have to apply for a grant if you're going to apply for like Mount Everest Foundation grant or something you have to provide like a resume of all your experience and I once saw Twid's resume and it was like fucking amazing it was like about 50 pages long and it was like it was unbelievable it was one of the most probably one of the most impressive climbing resumes you've I've ever read in my life just went on and on and on on. it was like amazing so you know when you read something like that like well this person knows what he's doing so if it's only got like one thing uh, that's not probably you know, you know, climbed like you know, done the red route in the climbing wall. Uh, that's probably not so good. So, um, so yeah, so just just going to one place uh, long enough to establish people know who you are, people trust you. That's a good way of like building up climbing relationships in that one place, and then hopefully getting enough experience that you can translate that when you go, you know, back to other places. Um. Another factor is uh, year on year, few people want to do hard alpine climbing. This can be seen by climbers applying for Mount Everest grants going down. So the pool is getting very small. On the plus side, a smaller pool combined with partnerships coming to an end. Look how Leah Holdings partnerships have changed since Ulvatana means that there are always others looking for someone to link up with. Uh, and back to the old, and back to the solo stuff. Climbers like Neil Charlton and Sean Warren seem to get into to get onto the radars of other climbers by their solo climbs, and so free themselves up from all the hassle of people and all their drama. And most difficult is the most difficult aspect of climbing. Don't really know what I'm saying there, but basically, people like Neil and Sean they went off you know, soloing some hard routes, and um, and yeah, that's that's how they established reputation and uh without all the hassle of dealing with you know instead of going to yosemite and trying loads of walls with other people random people they just went and soloed them <laughs> um as for me coming off three months of climbing with another human my solo days seem to be behind me i just found a climber i liked hanging out with who i trusted and wanted to climb with and then i married her so uh <laughs> so I don't know if that's got any any real advice there, really. Uh, it's just, um, but as I say, it's really important to get like a good climbing partnership. Uh, climbing clubs also can be quite good. I think I mentioned before joining the the Irish Mountaineering Club and met, meeting lots of um, interesting climbers there. But if you want it, I think the scope of this of that pod of that um, of that um blog was actually more to do with, like gnarly stuff if you want to do gnarly stuff that is that is much harder to find 
gnarly climbers. Um, like I think if you want to be, if you want to do gnarly, gnarly stuff, then you really have to try and somehow build up some kind of, some kind of resume somehow or other, and then try and, you know, join like the Alpine climbing group or something, or join, you know, try and write about your adventures so people know who you are. Like I guess that's how I, how I did it. Um, you know, like I, I wrote about, I probably wrote about my first trip to Yosemite and then I ended up getting asked to go with Andy, Andy, uh, Andy Perkins, who was like my hero because he'd read something I'd read, you know, so that, so that kind of way is way of, of doing it. If you want to do like gnarly, gnarly stuff, um, uh, you know, if you have, if you have, if you've got no one else, if you've got no one to climb with, you know, like doing some sort of guided trips, like going to climb Denali, maybe on a guided trip, climb, climb like on Kagua, um, just, just, just establish yourself that you have got, you have got like a, some, some, like a base of experience, um, is, is like, is like kind of helpful. And, and now you've got, you know, you've got the internet now, there's so many, this is so easy to to interact with people is uh you know just send emails to people like i get i could probably get like 10 10 emails every day from like young young climbers and people um asking questions and things and uh and uh like i think i think i think less and less people want to do that kind of stuff people seem to be more focused on work <laughs> um and also maybe that maybe that kind of you know, maybe that kind of climbing is something. Maybe it's best saved for later in life as well. Like if you're only, if you're 21 and you want to get on doing like super hard gnarly, you know, like winter alpine mountaineering things. Like maybe those things are better to do when you're a little bit older. Like when you're when you're in your 30s, when you're a little bit safer, a little bit more cautious, you have more kind of experience in the tank and all that kind of stuff. Um, maybe when you're in in your twenties, you're better focusing more on like you know rock climbing, just getting getting the mileage in. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't really don't really know really. It's a it's a difficult one. Um, but just yeah, if you if you if it means that much to you, then you'll then you'll do it. You'll find a way. And if it doesn't mean that much, then you won't. You'll, you'll get you'll take up something else instead take up golf or something um okay so that i i shall uh i shall sign off now vanessa is back from the gym from the gym from the running around outside and uh again if you like this podcast please share it uh any questions send them to me and um and uh and that's it so goodbye until next time
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.